Well, you know, in our daily Bible reading, we've been seeing a lot of difficult times, right? We've gotten to the place in 2 Kings where the Assyrians come and conquer the northern tribes. Uh, we're seeing Babylon now coming to conquer the southern tribes of Israel. There have been hard times, and it's been interesting that we're in that particular place in our DBR because we recognize the difficult times that we're in now, and I hope that it brings some perspective to us. I trust that it puts some of our struggle and our inconvenience in perspective, that it's very different than having a foreign power come in and wipe out, physically wipe out our worship center and enslave us and take family members off to a foreign land as prisoners. Uh, we're grateful that, uh, that this uh, difficulty that we're experiencing, not to minimize any of the suffering that's taking place, but to recognize that in perspective for most of us, this is a, a minor inconvenience to the kinds of things that God's people have been through. So I hope today to bring you some uh, encouragement, not to at all try to minimize the struggle, but at least to give us some hope and some strength in the midst of it by studying a familiar passage. I hope it's a familiar passage to you, and it will be by the time we're done if it's not already. But before we get into the Word of God, I want to spend a, just a, a minute or two in prayer. So if you would, bow with me, and let's talk to God together as we continue through this very uh, unique setting of preaching the Word of God, and uh, we want to learn from it today. So let's ask God to make that possible. Pray with me, please. God, we need your help, uh, obviously, in all things. But right now, we ask for your help that we'd be able to derive from Scripture what we need in this time, that um, regardless of how much other people have suffered throughout church history around the world right now, we, uh, we're weary and we can grow tired and we can be impatient and we can struggle with the things that uh, we want and we aren't getting. And the delayed, it seems, from our perspective, response to our prayers, um, we want to get back to uh, some semblance of normalcy We'd like our uh, jobs to be what they were, if not better. We want our church to reassemble. Uh, we want, um, we just want life in a way that it's different, that is different than it is now. And so we ask for you to help us, um, not only to continue to say to you and ask you to do good things for us, but for us to see the good things you're doing in the midst of this struggle. So we ask for you to give us that perspective today, as we study here in the Book of Isaiah. Help us, God, please to be strengthened today in the study of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah is our book. And in Isaiah, I want you to turn to chapter 40, which is a pivotal chapter. Uh, this is a chapter which helps us remember that disruption for the people of God is nothing new. This has been a um, common theme throughout the entirety of Scripture with people encountering all kinds of difficulty, having an expectation and a flow in their lives that is completely disrupted. And God wants to break in in chapter 40 here in Isaiah and remind Israel and Judah um, that there is a, uh, a plan. There's not only a plan, but there is a future and there is a hope. So turn to Isaiah chapter 40, uh, the frustration and pains and difficulties of our lives. Uh, it's trying our patience, I understand that. But here in the... Uh, 8th century BC, that's when his ministry starts. He has a ministry over 50 years. Uh, we're going to see him look ahead to the fall of the southern tribes, the ministry of uh, Isaiah, even as he speaks here about some of the things that have gone on in the northern tribes. And we're going to, I hope, understand something about um, how we can derive strength from God 
I want to get to the bottom of this chapter, the last five verses. We'll go through five observations here. Uh, Isaiah personally knows what disruption of life is all about. Uh, he was the one that is referred to in a veiled way in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, when it speaks of people being sawn in two. Even in our reading through Kings, we learn about Manasseh, and Manasseh was the one that the Talmud says that Isaiah was uh, martyred under the hand of. And um, talk about problems. He knows what problems are all about. He knows opposition. He knows the difficulty of trying to minister in a time of great disruption. So um, this is a text that, as you see here, beginning in verse 27, uh, the subgenre of this text is uh, a disputation, a, um, a complaint that is answered. And the complaint is helping to put us in the sandals of those who feel this way. And uh, I think sometimes when we are struggling with disruptions in our life, we can feel this way. So let me read the text for you, verses 27 through 31, Isaiah chapter 40. Follow along as I read it from the English Standard Version. The English text reads this way, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Here is a statement of inclusion of both the northern and the southern tribes. Got uh, The northern tribes have fallen, the southern tribes are going to fall. And he says, my way is hidden from the Lord. Why do you say that? And my right is disregarded by my God. Why would you say that? Have you not known, he says rhetorically, have you not heard, which of course is applying you have, of course you have, that the Lord, Yahweh, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. What a good perspective building statement. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. That's his pattern. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And while our struggles may be much less than what they were dealing with in Isaiah's day, I certainly want to derive the same result in our lives that this text was intended to have in the lives of the original audience. And that is that we understand some things about who God is, about who we are in relationship to God, and how that ought to do something to the interior of our lives that uh, makes us distinct from the rest of the world. So let's make five observations from these five verses. It'll break down nicely here, one verse per point. And I just want you to look at verse 27 and uh, to recognize that this use of Jacob and Israel together, it's used some 16 times throughout the last section here of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, and he's talking a lot about the north and the south together. And uh, we need to recognize that God is keeping track. He's seeing and connecting with all of the troubles of the people uh, the statement that he's asking, the rhetorical disputation here, the, the, the complaint that is presented is something that is, is about, he's about to say is, is not true, it's ridiculous. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, why do you speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God. So invert that here, and we have our first point, our first observation here, to say my way is hidden from the Lord. Well, that's not true. Your way is not hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. Uh, it's not disregarded by your God. And so we need to realize that no matter how hard it may seem, how difficult it may be, how um, our prayers may not be immediately answered while we go through struggles, we need to remember that you should, number one, never feel 
overlooked. It's hard to command our feelings, but we should never feel overlooked. We should never feel disregarded. We should never feel hidden from God. Those are the words of the text. And I just want to say you should never feel overlooked. God is not overlooking anything in your life. Regardless of what's been compounded in your life during this uh, COVID shutdown, you need to realize that none of that escapes the purview of God. If you're quick in your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 should be a mind-boggling statement to us. Um, it just should, should put everything in perspective about God's uh, awareness, about his omniscience. Take a look at this in verse 29, Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? They would sell these birds, these animals, as you went into the uh, temple complex. It became a bit of a you know, Costco, Sam's Club kind of thing. But, uh, and Jesus got mad about that, but the idea of buying animals, which you did, you would, you would bring money and convert that into um, animals for the sacrifices. The cheapest thing on the menu was the birds, right? The sparrows, the little birds. So two sold for a penny, uh, just the pence, they're, they're nothing. Um, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So now he's trying to get you to think about how insignificant a sparrow is, even in the economy of the first century. And he says, yet not one of them will die apart from your father. Now you got to, you got to inject the clear, you know, implication of this text. What does that mean apart from your father? So your father, the one you're calling your father is one who has a awareness of even the death of a bird. I mean, think about that. I mean, think of the millions and millions of birds. I mean, the hundreds of thousands, even kinds of birds that, that we have out there. And the birds that fly around and the birds that are in the tree and the small birds, right? We're not talking just about ostriches and, you know, chickens and turkeys. We're talking about even the little sparrow, the smallest bird. The Bible says none of them comes, to, their life doesn't come to an end apart from the, the oversight, the purview, the, the, the management of, of God. God doesn't overlook a sparrow. You remember that old song, perhaps, his eye is on the sparrow, right? Certainly he cares for you. He knows you. He doesn't have anything in your life escape his notice, which may lead you to some issues we're going to deal with in a minute in terms of, well, then why is God doing all that? But we're allowing all that. But the idea here of verse 29 is every single bird is under the purview of God. Of course, God's looking at you with complete knowledge. Your way is not hidden from him. Your cause, your right is not disregarded by God. And you may be saying, it's not right, it's not right, it's not right. And there's a lot of things that aren't right right now. None of that has escaped God's notice. Look at the next verse, verse 30. But comparing the, the birds, which are nothing, right, compared to us, it says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. It's remarkable when you think about it. I mean, think of the thousands and thousands of follicles on the top of your head. And, uh, you know, depending on who you are, the, that may vary between people. But the idea is you have all kinds of hair in your head. And, you know, I don't know if you ever look at the, you know, the shower, you, you lose hairs in the morning or whatever. You, you see a hair in, in the bathroom and you think there is a hair lost. And the Bible here says that every hair is, is numbered, right? Which is, again, it seems like a, a ridiculous comment. I mean, how well does God know me? You know, a lot of people that know me pretty well, but they don't know how many hairs I have on my head, right? I mean, nobody that knows that. They don't take time to count those. Well, God's omniscience includes the very hairs on your head. Therefore, verse 31, fear not. And I guess in our context, don't fear that your way is hidden. Don't fear that your rights 
are somehow disregarded. Don't fear that God is not seeing or sensing or aware of everything we're going through. Fear not, he says, verse 31. Therefore, if that's true, and of course it is, you are all of more value than many sparrows. If God cares about the lifespan of the bird that's in your backyard, okay, if God really, as this text says, has every single hair on your head cataloged, another text would remind us he's got every star in the sky. He calls them by name. I mean, I had trouble finding three names for my kids. God has got every star named. The the reality of God looking at our lives right now and you going, God, God, why not? Why is this happening? And do you even know it? Do you ever feel like God's just distant and, and over, overlooking you? It's just, it cannot be your conclusion. The Bible says you're worth way more than sparrows and way more, you know, the constitution of your life in terms of value, way more than the hairs on your head. I mean, we can go on and on in this, but let me just leave it at that. You and I can never as people, and I'm not just talking about Christians, there's not a person on the planet that can feel overlooked by God. And it's a common theme and Christians feel it, though they never should. Even people that aren't rightly related to God, God has a awareness of everything. So we're not informing God of anything when we pray. We're not letting him know about anything. He knows everything. And yet we're told to pour our hearts out before God. And we are told to uh, pray for specific things in our life. But it's really for our awareness that God is aware. And so never feel overlooked. Verse 28, the answer to this feeling of being overlooked is in verse 28, it says here, have you not known, have you not heard that Yahweh, the Lord, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Okay, here is a rhetorical question that's answered with, yeah, God is the creator. And if I said, you know, have you not known, have you not heard? And we talk about the creation of the world. Uh, there's not a person listening to this video right now that is cognizant of reality who can't answer the question, what is the beginning of the Bible all about? What is Genesis 1-1? Most of you can, you know, the 2 a.m. wake up, what's the first verse of the Bible? You can say it in the beginning, right? What? God created the heavens and the earth. The whole point of the Bible begins with God is fully in charge of all things because he has all power to create everything in the world. He is the source of power. Nothing that was created, nothing that is, was created apart from God. God has created all things. He has all power. It is inherent in who he is, and he is the fuel of everything in the universe. He not only created everything, the Bible says he sustains everything, he has all power. And he himself is never, you know, his gas tank is never low, his energy is never waning or lacking. He doesn't faint, he doesn't grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable. He knows everything, recapitulation of what we have in verse 27. He is always attuned to the realities of life, and he is always fully capable to give power in every situation. He is all-powerful. He is not only omniscient, verse 27, he is omnipotent, verse 28, and that omnipotence goes over all that he creates. His understanding, his management, his oversight, his transcendence over his creation, and therefore, if he's the fuel of it all, his involvement in all of creation, um, it, it, it's undeniable. God is a God in charge. Number two, I put it this way. We need to always affirm God is in control. We need to always affirm God is in control. It's not as though God created something that's bigger than him 
and he can't control. It's not that God created a world that he walked away from. It's that God is the creator. He is in charge. He knows all things and he has all power. Which, of course, the question for all those in Jacob and Israel, all those in Ephraim and Judah, all those who are there in the midst of trials when you've got uh, the Assyrians wiping out the northern tribes, you've got you know uh, the Babylonians, you've got Cyrus, uh, the head of the Persians, you've got all of these leaders of the world that are flexing their muscle and dominating Israel. Um, they're like, well, what's going on? How can this be? Look across the page. I just want to make this clear in Isaiah 41 that God is the God who has all of this within his powerful oversight, his sovereignty, which is another way to put it, right? Sovereignty, his management of all things. It's in control. He is controlling all things. Verse 40, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 41, verse 1. He says in this passage, he says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands, right? Go to the edge of the nation here. Go to the edge of this land, and I want you to quietly think here. He says, let the people renew their strength, right? This is what this sermon's all about. Let them approach, then let them speak, and let us together draw near for judgment, okay? And so there's going to be judgment, and here's the statement. He says, who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning. Well, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. I've done all these things. I recognize the leader that I've raised up, this foreign leader from the east. I brought him in. I am in charge of this. As a matter of fact, as long as we're looking in Isaiah, if you can skip ahead, scroll down all the way to Isaiah 46, speaking of this one from the east that's going to, to conquer, he says in verse 8, remember this and stand firm. This is Isaiah 46, 8. Recall this to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, and he certainly told his prophets those things, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east. There's that image again. And the man of my counsel from a faraway country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Okay. So the picture here is all these bad times, all this disruption in their lives in Israel, uh, all of the pain of a foreign power, uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the, uh, the, the uh, Persians, the Medo-Persians, all of that, he says, all my doing. I mean, we're always trying to uh, free God from the responsibility of the bad things, right? And yet God takes this on. He fully takes this on. As a matter of fact, it might be good jotting down Amos chapter 3, Amos chapter 3, verse 6, just to remember as he speaks of the disaster that comes. He says, is the trumpet blown in the city and the people not afraid? He says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Unless the Lord has done it? What are you talking about? Well, the point is God is the one who has done this. And in the end, though we don't want to attribute bad things to God, if God has all knowledge, he's omniscient, verse four, uh, 27, and he has all power, verse 28, 
Well, then there's no way of escaping the fact that God could prevent all this disruption if he wanted to. God could secure us in a world where there's no disease, no sickness, where we're not in a lockdown, when there's not a coronavirus threatening our health, where there's not, you know, chaos in our politics and frustration in this world and chaos all around us. Of course, God, can, can that disaster come to the city and the Lord not done it? The next verse in verse 7 says of Amos, says, for the Lord does nothing, nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. And that's the point. He says, the lion has roared. Who, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. The idea of God giving this prophetic word to his prophets, certainly in this period of time where he tells them the disaster is going to come, was a reminder that God is in charge of all these things. Even when Jesus talks about the fact that there's going to be pestilence and there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, there's going to be all these things that take place, earthquakes in various places. These are decreed, as Jesus said. They're going to happen, and it's all a part of God's purposeful plan. So we have to affirm all of this, that God is a God who's got all of this right on schedule. It's gonna really change the way you view this, which this whole sermon is about us deriving strength. We derive strength, for one, by knowing that God is omniscient. We derive strength from affirming the truth that God is also all-powerful. All-powerful, he created the world, he runs the world. That means he is sovereign over all things, he manages all things, and everything is under his control. There's nothing about what you're going through right now that God did not decree. He works everything after the counsel of his will, Ephesians chapter 1. There's no getting around the fact that this was caught part of God's plan. Is it bad? It's bad. I can call a bad thing a bad thing. Just like if you get a, an illness or you break your leg and all that, I mean, those are bad things, right? Bones weren't made to be broken. And yet God can break those bones, as David talks about in his life, and it's all a part of something that God is working out for his good plan and his pleasure. Ultimately, the bad is utilized for good. This is the doctrine of God's sovereignty, and there's no getting around it in the Bible. He does these things. He brings uh, good, and he brings bad. As Job admitted in the midst of the worst day of anyone's life, it could be all your kids are killed, your health is gone, your, your, everything you own is, is stolen from you, and he says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The reality of this is helpful for us to not lose our minds in the midst of hard times, that the Christian can affirm that God is in control. That's the second point here. And there's a passage that may be helpful for you to turn to. If you can get there quickly, Deuteronomy chapter 32. I guess I shouldn't keep saying that because you could certainly hit pause as you find these passages. Deuteronomy 32 verse 10. Uh, I, I want to remember, I want to remind you why we derive strength and peace in the midst of this, knowing that we're in the middle of this storm even though we think it's a bad storm and God's not about bad storms, as he will, we've already quoted a few passages, we could go on all you know, day about the reality of God's oversight over both the good and the bad. But it says here about the bad of you know, wandering in the desert, a lot of bad things that happened, you could blame it on the spies that didn't trust God, you could blame it on, I don't know, all kinds of the, the, the Pharaoh that had enslaved uh, them and conscripted them to slavery and God brings them out and now they're wandering around the wilderness eating manna and you know, look at this at the end of Moses' writings here in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32, when he says, uh, he found him in a desert land, uh, speaking of his people here, Jacob, he calls him in verse 9, Israel, another word for Israel. Actually, look at verse 9. The Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness, Okay, and he encircled him. So here's this, this, this nation of his, his people. He encircled him and he cared for him. And he kept him 
as the apple of his eye. You've heard that phrase, right? The apple of his eye, um, which, by the way, is the lens of your eye. And you picture the howling waste here, the windstorm in the desert, right? I don't know if you've ever been in a windstorm in the desert. It's like getting hit with a sandblaster. You're getting pelted. And that's why certainly in the you know, Near East, the ancient uh, um, outfit always included a turban, a head turban. You're out there and all this wind picks up. You put that across your face. You know, at least you can picture it from Indiana Jones, if nothing else. And in the midst of a desert, you cover your face. You have just a slit for your eyes. You're always protecting your eyes. You're doing the best you can to protect your eyes because sand in the eyes is, right, is the worst when you're out there in the midst of a windstorm. It says in verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him, right? No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land and he ate the produce of the field and he suckled him with the honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. These are the pictures of what they were just had just gone through. Moses, right, at the end of his ministry, the end of his life, here is a picture of God taking care of his people and he's about to bring them you know, through this difficult time in the conquest that Joshua's going to take over in, but the picture of God protecting them like his own eyeballs, right? Like you would protect your eyes. The picture of an eagle, you know, putting these strong wings, these pinions over a young uh, eagle chicks. I don't know if you call them that, uh, whatever they're called. And then God feeding them and caring for them. And there's all these stories, of course, during the Wilderness wanderings of God providing food and providing water for them. And here is a God who says, all of this, right? None of it's surprise. My knowledge of it, omniscient, my decree of it, my control over all things. And yet you're my focus. I, I, I am your God and you're my people and I care for you. I encircle you as someone would care for the apple of their eye in the midst of a sandstorm. That's the picture that we should have in our minds to affirm the realities. When you start thinking about Romans 8, 28, and you get glib about the fact that people quote this dispassionately and they don't think, and it's like the Lord works all things together for good, and you roll your eyes, you gotta stop rolling your eyes. You gotta think about the, the context of the, of the Bible of an omniscient, omnipotent God who sees and knows and plans and then says, and yet you're my people. In the midst of it all, you are my people. Even when the people of God are being persecuted, even when they're getting their heads lopped off in the worst persecution, uh, you're my people. We see God as our God who's made a, a city, a land for us. The Bible says an architect and builder, that's the city we're looking for. And the, the architect and the builder isn't people, it's God. And we know that God will get us from here to the promised land with his care and concern. So what are we supposed to do? Verse 29, back to our passage, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29. Here's what we do in the midst of the desert. As we walk through the desert, as they walk through the problem in the northern tribes of Assyria and Babylon and later Cyrus and, and the Medo-Persians, what are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to get strength from God. Look at verse 29. Here's the, the indicative truth. It's what God has promised to do. It's what God has done. It's what we have countless examples in the Bible of people getting. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no, no might, he increases strength. So this is the real crux of the sermon. Jot this down. Number three, we need to acquire strength from God. Acquire strength from God. That's what it says. He does that. He gives that. That's his method. That's his MO. He takes his power, the powerful God, the omnipotent God, and he gives strength to have people get through the desert. He has people get through the Babylonian captivity. He has people 
get through later the assembling of the land again through, uh, you know, all that's going to take place in Zerubbabel's return and Ezra and Nehemiah, all that. He's, he's going to get his people through all that by giving them strength, the endurance, and the patience to get through it. How do we do that? The means of it. Well, let me think back to the beginning of this chapter. Uh, go up to verse 1 and 2 of Isaiah 40. It starts with this, comfort my people, comfort rather, comfort twice, comfort, comma, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. In other words, you're going to hard times. It's bad. It's, of course, because of your sin and your idolatry. But here's the thing. Uh, you're pardoned. You're forgiven. Four things real quick that, that I think are going to be the means of that strength. And I'll put these in terms of questions. So if you want to, A, B, C, and D, okay? A, are you spiritually alive? Do you know that you're pardoned? Are you right with God? I mean, that's the real question. Am I spiritually alive? I can be physically sick. I can be economically broke. I can be relationally in a complete mess. But am I spiritually alive? How am I going to be strengthened, right? I'm not going to be strengthened unless I know that spiritually I'm, I'm alive to God and I'm in a relationship with God. Am I spiritually alive? Let's put that in a New Testament phrase. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. It says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, simple phrase, according to my gospel. There's the good news. The good news is, hey, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The sins have been paid for. It's all taken care of. It's been settled. And of course, that's never fully true until the cross, right? The reality of that is, yes, we've been pardoned because sins have been dealt with. They've been dealt with in a complete way. And he says, that's the strength. We derive strength from that. How do we get strength? Well, we get strength through the gospel, through the good news, through the fact that you can sit there right now, you could look at me and say, I am right with the living God because I have put my trust in him. I have uh, repented of my sins. I've seen the problem of my sinfulness and I've cried out to God for his forgiveness. And the Bible says, if you've confessed your sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You cry out to him. Who's going to be saved? The one who calls on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've done that, then you're alive inside. You have that connection with the living God. And if that's true, that's the beginning of strength. God is the God who strengthens us according to the gospel. He says, to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Well, the reality of what Isaiah 40 began to speak about was realized in a full way by the revelation of Christ coming to die in our place. So four questions. If you're going to acquire strength from God, you got to ask yourself, am I spiritually alive? And then I would say this, for some of us during this COVID-19, you may be struggling uh, with the kind of strength that you need to have because, number two, you're spiritually malnourished. And I would just present the book of Isaiah as the exhibit there. The whole book of Isaiah is God giving them truth. you got to believe the truth. you got to know what's true about me, about you, about the realities of what you're going through, even what we've done so far. And just pointing out that God is omniscient and He's omnipotent and He's uh, sovereign over all things. I mean, those, those are truths that... that if you don't have that in the front of your mind, then you're spiritually malnourished. Jot this down. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. He says, um, sorry, let me get that passage up. Oh, I said that, but it's chapter 5. 
That was close. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. I'm trying to talk to them about Zerubbabel. I'm sorry, Zerubbabel. About uh, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is, um, you know, a few layers deep, right, in Scripture when we're thinking about what happened in Genesis and then in Psalm 110. And now he's saying, look, Christ fulfilled all that. And he's like, wow, I would like to talk more about that, he says. And about this, we have much to say. But it's hard to explain, he says, since you've become dull of hearing. It's a great Greek word uh, that means lazy, nothros. It means uh, you, you just, you, you're kind of a slug. You're not, you're not working hard. Working hard at what? Well, at the information, God's truth, right? You're spiritually malnourished. He says, for this time you ought to be teachers, he says, but you need someone again to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. I mean, you just need the basics because they didn't get it. They weren't getting it. He says, you need milk. Look at this, verse 12, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. I mean, one thing I set out at the very beginning of this, I gave you a stack of books. I said, here, we've got to be reading some good biblical material. And, and I'm hoping that Satan hadn't snack, you know, snatched up all this time that we thought we might have. You need to get back to that. Redouble your efforts in saying, I've got to learn the truth of God's word. Of course, it starts with reading and studying the Bible and then standing on the shoulders of those who have written good books, who have thought clearly and cogently and lucidly about the scripture and have written those things down to guide us in our thinking through the scripture. Um, and and we've got to get past the simple milk of the word, you know, the, the short, you know, slogans and bumper stickers of Christianity. Keep reading here. If you're unskilled in the word of righteousness, you're just a kid, you're a child. And you know what kids don't have? They don't have a lot of strength. But solid food, verse 14, which would include understanding things like what happened with Melchizedek and uh, the prophecy of, 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 of Psalm 110 and then the fulfillment in Christ. I and mean, those are the kinds of difficulties that you got you to get beneath the surface. You don't learn that you know, in Sunday school as a kid. Uh, he says, solid food is for the mature. Right? Mature are strong. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Sometimes we can't distinguish good from evil in our thoughts and our doctrine because we're not skilled in the word of righteousness. So the picture here is acquiring strength, number one, by knowing that I'm spiritually alive, and number two, that I'm not spiritually malnourished. You're working in the word of God. It will do, as Psalm 19 verse 7 says, you will uh, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It revives us. You've got to get in the Word. I think you know that. I hope you know that. If it's been your pattern to get in the Word, take a day. I'm not saying this literally, but if you took a day and you didn't spend any time in the Word, you would feel malnourished that day. You're not going to have the strength to get through difficult times unless you are spiritually alive, unless you are spiritually nourished. So are you spiritually malnourished? Number three, your letter C. Just ask you this. Am I meeting spiritual needs? Am I meeting spiritual needs? First um, Peter chapter 4, verse 10. I know I'm outside of the book of Isaiah at this point, but the idea of the people of God knowing that they're not there as recipients of God's goodness without any responsibility to be a conduit to that. I mean, there's so much in the book of Isaiah that hints at that, but the idea in our New Testament text in First Peter chapter 4 reminds us that God is invested in us, as I like to say, not as a cul-de-sac, but as a conduit, as a thoroughfare, as something that God is going to take and invest in you for the good of other people, not just to hand out material things, but to grant and, and, and invest spiritual things in other people. You know, the things you've heard in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, that ongoing chain of, of, of spiritual investment, not just the teaching, but includes that. First Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, God has endowed you with something. 
Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And there's our theme, right? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belongs dominion, I'm sorry, glory and dominion forever and ever. The idea of that strength being given, God is ready to provide strength to those who are utilizing the investments they have to invest spiritually in other people, for, spirit, for the spiritual good of other people. So you get the theme here in these questions so far. Are you spiritually alive? Are you spiritually malnourished? Are you spiritually serving someone? Not just someone, but are you meeting spiritual needs? Who are you investing in, spiritually investing in? Who are you helping to grow in their faith and their knowledge and their understanding? Um, that's critical. You're speaking, speak like you're giving the oracles of God. In other words, you're giving it with like, this is important, right? You do it with enthusiasm. And if you're serving, serve as though God has fueled you to serve. You do it with all of your might. Lastly, under this subpoint, acquire strength from God. How? By what means? Well, ask yourself the question, am I spiritually alive? Are you Christian? Are you spiritually malnourished? Are you meeting spiritual needs? And then I'd put it this way. We've talked a lot about this. We don't need to belabor this, but letter D, am I connecting with my spiritual family? Uh, am I connecting with my spiritual family? One of the things that the book of Isaiah always does is speaks in terms of the people of God, the commonality. You're in this together as the people, the covenant people of God. And I would say that is there's such a natural strength that is derived in team. And the team that we should feel in the midst of any hard time isn't going to be realized or felt if we're not making that effort. Um, Galatians 6, 2, right? Bear one another's burdens, right? If you're in the difficult times of, of the trial of this disruption or whatever it is that you might be struggling with financially, relationally, health-wise, we are to help each other through it. And I hope you're experiencing that. I hope you're working at that, that you're not pulling away, even though we can't physically meet. And we've been through this very strange isolation. I hope that you're doing your best to break through that. We've said so much about that. Ecclesiastes 4, you know, when people are tripping and falling, it says, you know, Two are better than one, right? If someone falls, the other can pick them up. That's the idea. You're part of this as a team. So, and again, I could go on and belabor that, but I don't, I hope I don't need to. We've preached so much about that. Am I spiritually alive? Am I spiritually malnourished? Am I meeting spiritual needs? And am I connecting with my spiritual family? You see the reality there, which I'm trying to get to now. There's a spiritual component here that is being strengthened, even if everything else is a mess, which we're going to talk about now. Back to our text, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30. Verse 29 was, give strength. He gives strength to the faint. He gives to him who has no might. He increases his strength. Verse 30, now, even youths, even if they're young and strong, they shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Okay, well, this is about not being exhausted and not being weary. And what are you talking about here? Now you're saying young people and young men will be tired and exhausted. Well, here's the analogy. You got people here that have natural strength and they grow weary and tired. Here's people that should have every natural reason not to be strong and they're not. That's the point. He gives strength to them. And what's what are we talking about? Physical strength, pumping iron, right? Bench pressing something, running a, you know, a marathon. It's not the point, right? It's the analogy, but it's not the point. The point is that there's something internally going on that drives them through whatever struggle they have, whatever deprivation they have, whatever disruption they have, and they do it with a strength that God supplies that is distinct from those who run out of strength. They are different. They're not like us. And I just want to make this point. Number four, you need to remember you're different than the world. 
And if there is not a distinction between you and your non-Christian neighbors during all of this, there ought to be, that you don't have the same grumbling, complaining attitude, that you don't have the same bleak outlook, that you're not driven or reacting out of fear, that you're not like them. You are a child of God. You are the apple of God's eye. You're the person that God has pulled into this family. You're spiritually alive. You're spiritually nourished. You're spiritually serving. You're spiritually connected to the body of Christ. And those things are driving you as a Christian to to internally push through whatever it is that's coming your way. So our natural strength doesn't matter. What matters is what's going on on the inside. Jot this down if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, just to prove this point as though I needed to. Um, he says, we don't lose heart, though the outer self, the outer man is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's the distinction. It may be that we are weary. You may be tired. You may be sick. You may have very little strength. You may be so sick and laying on your back that you can only be awake for two hours a day. I don't know, I'm just being extreme here. But the idea of that, I'm saying, is something that has nothing to do with the kind of strength we're talking about, that you have internal strength, that you have the strength that you are having hope, confidence, that you power through this with the right biblical optimism. <sighs> so many examples of God choosing the weak to shame the strong, I'm, you know, quoting First Corinthians. But I'm thinking of the passage in Hebrews 11, where I wanted to go in verses 34 and 35, speaking of that passage that refers to uh, Isaiah, at least in the Talmud, the picture of him being sawn in half. But it speaks about those who quench the power of the fire. I mean, there was the three uh, Hebrew slaves, the three Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, as they're called in Hebrew in Daniel. Escape the edge of the sword. I mean, so many examples of that uh, during First and Second Kings. Uh, and in Judges too. They were made strong out of weakness, right? Gideon, the weakest clan, the weakest guy, you know, God takes those people and he internally drives them to step up and stand up and speak up and do what they should do. They became mighty in war, clearly a good example of Gideon, right? They They put foreign armies to flight. Look what they did. Look what God used them to do. Women receive back their dead by resurrection, right? We've been reading about that with Elisha and Elijah. Uh, talk about having no strength, you're dead, right? Your, your family member's dead. And here are pictures of God saying, listen, I have all power over everything and I can show by example, which again, it's not about the physical strength, not even about the physical resurrection. It's about God, the God who fuels the people that he makes and the way in which uh, he will bring us all back to life one day in the ultimate resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life, uh, better resurrection. I mean, so many good examples there of what I'm talking about. So things may be hard. This culture may be hard. The difficulties you're experiencing may be hard. You may be fatigued. You may be impatient. Second Corinthians 4 verse 7 reminds us that we have this treasure of this God who's made us alive and strengthened us internally and nourished us internally. So that the surpassing power would be clear and obvious that it belongs to God and not to us. Matter of fact, that's worth turning to, right? You can quickly get there. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way. We're not crushed. We're perplexed. We're not driven into despair. We're persecuted. We're not forsaken. We're struck down. We're not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body, right? Your physical body, the death of Christ, right? The death of Jesus. 
so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. There's the, there's the paradoxical reality of this. These people are having so many bad things happen, and yet internally, they're driving through it. The life of Christ, spiritually, is driving me, even though my outer person is decaying, or in this case, being stoned or beaten or persecuted or tortured, whatever it might have been, so that we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh, our body in this life, so that death is at work in us, uh, but life in you, that's the ministerial part of giving the investment that God has given to us and passing that on, like I talked about there in 1 Peter 4. Um, anyway, this great line, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay. So this is about an internal strength. This is remembering that I'm not like the world. I may have the same external uh, symptoms of the world, whatever that might be, the difficulty, the economic decline, the physical problems, the relational issues, but I'm not like them because I've got something going on inside, this strength and this hope. Lastly, Isaiah chapter 40, this last verse, probably the most famous verse in this passage. You remember this. But they who wait upon the Lord, those who wait for the Lord, uh, some translations of hope for the Lord, the idea of me patiently in the midst of unchanged external circumstances, having this confidence that God is in charge of affirming all these truths and affirming all of the realities that we've just talked about, that we've highlighted. God is in charge. God knows all things. God is powerful and I am connected rightly to him and he wants to empower me and give me strength internally. I'm not like the world. The rest of the world goes through things. They look the same on the outside, but they're certainly not the same on the inside. He says, so if we're going to trust in God like that, we're going to wait on God like that, then he's going to renew their strength. They're going to mount up with wings like eagles, which by the way, I guess I should throw this in now. That was a great set of verses even back in Moses's day. He says, you yourselves, this is Exodus 19.4, for you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Okay, this is in the middle of it all. In Exodus 19, I brought you out. I carried you into the wilderness. I made sure your sandals didn't wear out. I gave you manna to eat. I cared for you. Yeah, you can, you've got a sunburn maybe. You know, you may be struggling. You may be tired of manna. You maybe have sand between your toes. But listen, I took you through this. I brought you out on, we, on eagle's wings. Well, he says that in Exodus 19 at the end of his ministry. I mean, we were quoting this at the end of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 11, he says, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them and bearing them up on its pinions. There's the picture, not only protection, but also launching them and, and, and carrying them and caring for them. The wings of eagles. Anyway, I was in the middle of quoting that passage. But they shall mount up with wings like eels. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk uh, and not faint. I like that picture of being able to run and walk, right? Uh, and not grow weary and not faint. That's the hope and my prayer as I thought about Isaiah chapter 40 this week and kind of outlined this for you. I thought about the race that's set before us, Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. And I guess in light of all that and so much biblical history we've been talking about in this sermon, I just want you to remember that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. They testify to God's faithfulness. They testify to it. We, we quoted the end of that, right? In Hebrews chapter 11, those who quenched the, the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. That set of examples now in chapter 12, verse 1, Hebrews 12, 1, the transition, therefore, based on all that, 
since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of testifiers who can testify to that, that truth. It's a great cloud, a great host of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, which I think at the top of the list for most people, it's doubt. We doubt God. Then let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And as they lean over the rails of heaven, like I often say, they, you know, they got to say in many ways we're lightweights. This is, you know, when we're sitting around in our pajamas or, you know, whatever, going to Costco in our air-conditioned cars. Um, it's not the persecution we so often think it is. It's not the struggle or the trial we think it is. I mean, maybe for some of you, you've had super duper hard times, but even so, in those hard times, whatever the race set before us is, let's run it with the endurance, knowing that all these things that we've seen contextually in Isaiah 40 and historically throughout Hebrews 11, these are true realities. We can trust God for renewed strength. Did I ever give you that point number five? Trust God for renewed strength. Trust him for it. Know that he'll give that to us. As small as it may be in light of other things, and I don't mean to keep saying that to, to minimize our difficulties, but in the difficulties we have, let's trust him to give us strength to power through this. Um, I try to make that contrast in the fourth point there, that you're different than the world. But I want that to be something you see as the challenge in this message, that you show the characteristic reality of your relationship with God by the strength that you have to carry on. So don't grow weary. Don't be faint. Know that we look to God and we derive that strength and we're able to face whatever it is that God has for us. So Christian, be encouraged, be strengthened, be hope-filled, be optimistic. It's not about external things. It may, you know, if things never get better, uh, we're going to trust in God and walk through these things with power. I hope you see that in other people's lives, that there are some Christians you can see that's happening. Make that the goal and hope of your life as you look to God to find that strength. Let me pray for you. God, help us in the midst of all this, as difficult as it uh, may be. And I know in varying ways it is difficult depending on who I'm talking to right now, but uh, give us what we need. Give us the strength that we need. Let us derive strength as we affirm what's true and continue to do what's right. And I pray you'd bear us up and allow us to walk this path that's set before us with endurance, not growing weary, not being tired. Strengthen us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.